Good morning again to, to all of you. It is a, it's a privilege for our family to be here together uh, with you today, to worship with you, to hear you sing uh, great songs like that. And uh, just pray that we would be honored to the Lord as we continue in our worship of Him. This is a great time of our worship service that we look into the Word of God. Uh, in one way, it could be considered the climax of our time of worship in that uh, we hear from Him. He speaks to us through his word, and we have an, uh, an opportunity to respond in faith and obedience to him. We're going to be in Psalm 19 today. So please turn your Bibles to Psalm 19. As, as you're turning there, I'm going to tell you right off the bat today, right at the beginning, uh, my goal today in this message is for you to be able to leave here knowing, to leave here believing that God has already, it's done, that he's already given you everything that you need for life and godliness. Second Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And when we think of this idea of knowledge, it raises the question then, how do we know him? How does this happen? And we can say that we know God through Jesus Christ, because Jesus, it says in Colossians 1, is the perfect image of God. When we see Jesus, he said to his disciples, you know me, you know the Father. He's the perfect image of God. And Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, provides for us life and godliness by his gracious work, the gift of God to us through the gospel. God has also revealed himself to us through what is called general revelation, meaning that God's revealed himself to us through his created world, the universe, what we see, what we sung about this morning. Uh, But there's limits to this that can only accomplish so much. We're going to see that today in Scripture. And then finally, God has in specificity. He's revealed himself to us through what's called special revelation. So we have general revelation and special revelation. And, and this is God's revelation to us through his word. So an easy way to think about that, general revelation, God's revelation to us through his world, his created world, special revelation, God's revelation to us through his word. Okay? So we're going to see this all today as we look through Psalm 19. Please follow along as I read through this psalm. Starting in verse 1, it says, The heavens... Declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, 
enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray before we go into the word here today. Father, we do thank you and praise you. Uh, We are here today, your created beings on your created earth, and we look and see what you have done, and we know and must acknowledge that you are marvelous, that you are glorious. And Lord, we get to see today into your written word. And we find all of these things to be true again and to see uh, the specifics of your goodness and your righteousness and your holiness and and not just the acknowledgement that you're there, but how you're there and why you're there and, and the relationship that we can have with you. And so, God, I pray that you would help us today, knowing that you are not a God who needs counsel. God, may we be humble and receive your counsel to us. And God, where we need to change and grow, give us humility to do so. And to be encouraged and to believe and and have all confidence in the credibility and accuracy and faithfulness of your word. So that we can know you better and be pleasing to you in our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's go ahead and look at these first six verses. These six verses, if you notice as you're reading through, these detail to us information about general revelation. God revealing himself to us through his world. It says, the heavens, so all of the universe, declare the glory of God. That's what it declares, the glory of God. And and the sky above, we think about Genesis 1 and the creation account, think of that as just as the expanse. So when we look up into the expanse, into the sky above, what do we see? And it's not just our atmosphere, but we get to see what goes beyond, don't we? So all that we see out beyond, all of that proclaims his handiwork. And the idea of handiwork, that's like craftsmanship, isn't it? It's skill. There's detail to that. There's design. One of the arguments for the existence of God that's out there is called the teleological argument. That's the $50 word for the day, okay? That just is, you don't have to remember that, but it's just a fancy word that means an argument of design. There's a purpose behind it. Everything was designed with an end in mind, okay? And as we look at the universe, we look at the world and the created order around us, from the vastness of the universe and things like gravitational pull to the minutia, the small details of things like DNA and how all of those things work, all of these things scream out the glories of God. And we say, how could these things be without an intelligent designer? But we know who that intelligent designer is, don't we? Because we can see his handiwork, and it proclaims the glory of God. 
And verse 2, day-to-day pours out speech, night-to-night reveals knowledge as we continue to learn, the more and more we know, uh, good science that tells us about DNA and about how it functions and about how it makes us who we are physically and all of those kinds of things. The more we learn and the more we apprehend, it just makes us think, wow, God, God is amazing, God is amazing. Day-to-day and night-to-night, we learn more of the glories of God. In his created order, we see, and this, the psalmist here, David, points out the biggest thing that we see from our perspective, the sun. And he says, in them, in the expanse, in the worlds, he has set a tent for the sun. Just remember, this is perspective. David looking from earth, looking up, and he sees the expanse, and the sun goes up and over and across. So he says here, the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. The idea here is the young man who has... Uh, prepared a place. And in Jewish custom, the father says, son, go get your bride. Okay, how does the son go about that process? Okay, does he just waste time and go to the store first? And no. Does he, does he wear his, uh, holy sweatpants and a grungy t-shirt? When you go to a wedding, what do you see that groom ready to do? And he's like, let's go, let's get this done, right? The son comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber to go get his bride. He's eager to show off. And like a strong man, there's no stopping it. You're not going to stop the son from moving forward, are you? Like a strong man, he runs his course with joy. It's rising, the sun, from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. Uh, Nothing in creation from our perspective, think about David's time, Seeing the sun rising in the east and going straight every day, nothing, nothing impeding its progress to the other end of the expanse. And if that's all it means, that's, that's good enough, right? That's pretty impressive as it is. We know how all that works, right? We're the ones spinning. Um, but even if the Bible was ahead of its time, and David was on to something more than just what the sun appears to be doing, think about this. We know that the sun moves a half a million miles per hour. The sun is not stationary. As massive as the sun is, it is constantly moving at half a million miles per hour. And it's orbiting in its place around the Milky Way galaxy. And it would take, figure this out, it would take 230 million years. So if you think of that massive sun going that fast and taking 230 million years to make it around this galaxy... Does that make God look smaller to you <laughs> or bigger to you? This is why day to day, night to night, the more we learn, the bigger God seems to get. And let's think about this now. Does that mean that we're appreciating God for what he is? Or does that mean we still have a ways to go before we even can begin to glimpse the glory, the greatness, the power of God? It says here, nothing is hidden from its heat. And God spoke it into existence. <laughs> Instantaneous. Did he have to think for a long time and plan it and drop all the, all the prints and everything and get it checked and edited and then, and then, okay, let's start doing this thing. No, the intelligence of our God. In eternity, and a moment comes and he says, let there be. And it's there. <sighs> Amazing. The greatness of our God. So, 
We know from these six verses that when every person looks at creation, the glory of God is revealed to him or to her, but what does this, the question is, what does this accomplish? As amazing as that is, as much as that will blow our minds, what does it actually accomplish in the life of a person? Is this knowledge enough for a person to simply see creation and know that there's a God who's glorious? Is there more to it? What can we learn? And Scripture speaks to this. So this is in Romans 1. If you want to turn to Romans 1 with me real quick, we're going to look at verses 18 through 21 to see Scripture's answer to the question, what does general revelation accomplish in the heart of man? So Romans 1, starting in verse 18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power. So eternality, his power, his divine nature, that there is a God who is divine. These things have been clearly perceived. And what did this passage say to how many people? All. Every single human being who has ever lived or who will ever live clearly perceives, if nothing more, that there is a God who is eternally powerful and of a divine nature. That's why the Psalms say the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It says that this is true ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God because they didn't want him and because they rejected him. They exchanged his glory for images. Remember, the word images doesn't just mean clay pots or wooden structures. It's something that's supposed to represent. Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. So anything that we put in the place of God... There is an exchange of glory that is rightly due to him. There is an exchange of that glory for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see the descending order there? Even those. This is what we've done. We see that the condition of man in this passage is unrighteous, that he suppresses the truth that we have eternal power and divine nature seen clearly in the glory of God that all men there are for with, are without excuse. And this rejection of God in general revelation is grounds for condemnation. If we think about this now, okay, what does a person have to reject in order to earn condemnation? This is not a fun thing to talk about, but it's here in Romans 1. Every man, woman, and child knows the glory of God from creation and they reject it and they refuse to allow him to be their Lord. Not knowing even the rest of the details, they reject what they know and this says it's grounds then for condemnation. 
Man exchanges what he knows for what he would prefer. This is the exchange. In his darkness and the sin of his heart, he'd rather follow his own designer God that allows him to do the things that he wants to do, that will give him the things that he wants to have. This has been done throughout history. Think about the Tower of Babel. What were they doing at the Tower of Babel? God had given the command after the flood, man, be fruitful and multiply and spread over all the earth. In that passage, they literally get together and say, let us make a name for ourselves so that we don't have to be fruitful and multiply and spread all over the earth. They made a God for themselves to give themselves their own commands that they wanted to follow. That is no God. But in the darkness of our hearts and the futility of our minds, we make these things for ourselves. Uh, Today, a growing religion that we don't think of it as a religion, but it's humanism. Humanism. We might call it atheism. That there is no God, but then who is God if there is no God? What is the greatest and most glorious thing? And the default answer is man. And so man is the end. And if I'm the greatest, and if you're the greatest, and if you're the greatest, then we all get to decide what's right and what's wrong for me. And does that sound like our culture today? That's where we are. This is the religion that's being preached all over our culture, and we must be alert to its allure, because it'll grab our hearts, and I'll grab it quickly. So this means that if we all had general revelation, we all would be condemned. If that's all we had, if that's all we had was general revelation, all we could see is creation, all we could see was the expanse of the heavens, and we knew there was a God and there was nothing more than that, we would have nothing but condemnation because we would, in our nature, reject him and exchange the glory for something that met my felt, wrongly felt, needs. So, praise God, that's not the end of Psalm 19. There's more to come. In the next three verses, we're going to see six different descriptive names for the Word of God. We're going to see six different uh, adjectives describing the Word of God. We're also going to see six different results of the knowledge and application of the Word of God. Remember, the Psalms are song lyrics, basically. This is poetry. And so we're going to see this repetition six times in each of these things. Notice also in verses 7 through 9 that we see six times the word, the words of the Lord, of the Lord, of the Lord, in every one of those instances. Okay? Uh, this is God's personal name. In the Hebrew, it's, it's uh, Yahweh, or some of, it would be pronounced Jehovah. You hear those names. Those actually, Jehovah and Yahweh are the same thing. Uh, I'm not going to do a Hebrew lesson right now, but... That's what those, those are both the same thing in the Hebrew. That's the personal name for God. And so this, uh, the word of God is his personal, special revelation to you. God has a desire of relationship. You can know God. He has a personal name and he's written to you so that you can know him. So verse seven, verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word law there carries the idea of God's divine instruction. He is, through the word, teaching us to know how to live life. He's teaching us to know how to live life. And the word perfect means without blemish, certainly, but it also carries the idea of not lacking. The the word of God is complete. It's comprehensive. 
there's nothing it doesn't cover that we need to know. Uh, there's nothing missing or lacking in God's word. He's given us everything. Think about 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, complete and equipped for every good work. And the law of the Lord revives the soul. The soul there is word for inner man. The Bible uses a lot of different words to relate to the immaterial, the inner man. Things like soul or maybe heart, mind, our spirit. All these words relating to uh, the inner man. The law of the Lord revives that, brings life to it. Uh, the idea is here being transformed, being transformed. Think of Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. John seventeen seventeen says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of of your mind. So the word of God has every instruction that we could ever need to change us and to lead us to a totally transformed life. And that's just the first of six. The next says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Uh, We know the word testimony. It's the idea of giving a witness. This is God's witness to us. It's the who, what, when, where, why, and how of God that we find given to us in Scripture so that we can know him. And this testimony is sure. We think of words like assure and insure and all of those kinds of things. Sure is the idea here that God's word is reliable. It's true. It's able to be followed. This word gives us God's guarantee, his promise to us. And what will it accomplish here? It makes wise the simple. This word carries the idea of a door hanging ajar. The door, as our doors of the sanctuary, the auditorium here are right now, the door just hanging ajar. It's wide open, okay? So think about this on your mind. Do you want to have a door on your mind that's just swinging ajar, that's just hanging there open? This isn't a good idea. This means that we would be lacking in discernment. We don't know when to shut the door, what we're letting in and what we're Stopping. Does that make sense? We don't want to have that kind of a open mind, if that's the definition of an open mind. Uh, there are some things that we need to be closed-minded about. I remember Pilate asking Jesus, what is truth? Is that a good thing to be open-minded about, that there should possibly not even be the existence of truth? That's not open-mindedness, if you think about it. That's not a good idea. In John 14, 6, before that, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but by me. Truth is exclusive. There's only one way. Uh, So definitely there's things we need to be closed-minded about. Another definition for truth is truth is that which corresponds with reality. This pulpit is here right now. It's not not here. It cannot be both here and not here at the same time. Would you agree with that? (laughs) Mind blown. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. So there can't be a both and. 
There's no such thing, by definition, as alternate realities. Okay? There's no such thing. So we can have confidence in the Word. It is truth. It is reality, and God guarantees it as such. So then we think about this idea of wisdom, making wise the simple. Wisdom, then, is having discernment and understanding. But then here's the next step that results in being skilled at living. Wisdom is a little bit distinct from knowledge. We can know a lot of things, and we can uh, kill it on a Bible trivial pursuit or something like that, but it is a trivial pursuit if it doesn't change us. Wisdom is taking that knowledge and applying it to our lives and making us pleasing to God in the things that we do. Moving on to verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Precepts, the idea here is statutes or principles that we find in Scripture, are doctrines that come from Scripture, these precepts that God gives to us. These are the things that we believe that direct us and that guide our actions. And it says that those precepts are right. They're right where they ought to be. It's like a straight path. That's the terminology here. It gives us a straight path. God's Word teaches us precepts that guide and direct us on that straight path, which then results in a heart that rejoices. Can you remember the word, the heart, is the inner man? Our thinking and our desires... Those of you that were here for the Sunday school hour, do you see where we're going with this? What just happened in this passage? Precepts of the Lord changing our thinking, which then results in a change of our desires. We then walk the straight path, and the result of that is a joyful heart. We feel how we feel often because we have done what we have done, and we do what we do because we want what we want. We want what we want because we think how we think. That's how God's designed us. And here it is again in Psalm 19. It's all over the place. Look at, uh, don't have to look here, but Genesis 4-7, the way the NASB translates that is, this is when Cain is angry that God accepted Abel's offering but not his. Remember, Abel gave the sacrificial lamb and Cain tried to give the fruit of the ground and God had favor on Abel's offering and not on Cain's. Remember this story, this narrative from Genesis 4? And God confronts Cain and says, Cain, why are you angry? And the, and the literal wording there is, why has your face fallen? You know what that's talking about, right? When somebody's face has fallen, you know what's happened. Are they super happy? No, there's, there's something wrong. There's depression or there's anger, there's anxieties. And Cain complains. And God says to Cain, Cain, if you do well... You know what the acceptable sacrifice is, Cain. If you do well, the literal translation would be, would your countenance not be lifted? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? So it's there in Genesis 4. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, abide in me, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's what Psalm 34, 37, 4 teaches. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Many of us have memorized this passage. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, the inner man. And do not lean on your own understanding, our own wrong thinking. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Search out what he has to say, his precepts. And he will make your paths straight. 
There it is again. Ephesians 4.24. We read this this morning. To put off your old self, the crooked path that you've been walking down, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, to change your thinking, to let God's precepts guide your thinking and correct your thinking. And then to put on the new self, changed living, walking the straight path, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and true holiness. There's so much more on this. This concept is throughout the scriptures. So let's move on, okay? The next half of this verse, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The word commandment here obviously means God's decrees. And those decrees that he has made as a sovereign Lord, they're pure. They're clear. Think the idea of just clarity. God gives us clear and understandable, praise God for that, understandable direction. And it says that God's clear direction for us enlightens our eyes. Think of just turning on the light switch. Okay? Uh, Wiley Coyote, what happens when he finally gets that idea that's going to finally take care of the roadrunner? Isn't this a godly illustration here? What just miraculously appears before his head when he gets that idea? The light bulb. Right? Now, his ideas never work. (laughs) When God's commandments give us the light bulb and our eyes are enlightened, it works. It works. Every time. We turn on the lights which God turns on through his commandments and we finally get it. I get it. Isn't that a wonderful feeling when you're reading the Word, when you're sitting under preaching or teaching and something just makes sense to you because the Spirit's working through His Word and you get it? You're like, ah! You have that moment. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, God's commandments provide that clarity and then allows us to see life in a way that, if you think about it, no one else can. This is something that we have that nobody else has. It's for His children. This is a part of the ministry of the Spirit. In John 16, Jesus said the Spirit would guide us in all truth. And that includes the conviction of our sin, the gift that God gives us of self-awareness of how we're not like Christ. That's a beautiful discovery as well, even though it might make us feel bad initially, because then we can have victory and move on and become more like Christ and walk closer to him. So let's just have a time out here to think about this. If this is something that we have Because we have Christ, we're new creations, we can change our thinking, the Holy Spirit is in us, uh, illumining our minds to the truth of God's word. If we have that, and only we have that, then who doesn't have that? And the, the easy answer is, everybody else. Who? Everybody else. How often do we think, how in the world would somebody do something like that? We had those thoughts this week, even as we heard, hear news from the school in Texas. How could somebody ever do something like that? How in the world? And Christians, what's the answer? We're in the world. It certainly doesn't make it right. It's still entirely wrong, and it saddens us. But this is the world. And that needs to then give us, uh, should we have this attitude where we look down on people and say, I can't believe you would do such a dastardly thing. 
And just to make it easier for us to think about that, the school shooting is pretty severe, isn't it? But we do we say those kinds of things to people for far less? If we're honest, we'd say, yeah, we do. But folks, why do they do that? Who are they? Let's think biblically about this. Okay, they don't have what we have. We need to have compassion on the world when they do crazy and say crazy things. Uh, The light switch has not been turned on. We can't expect things from people who don't have Christ. And sometimes we have to say that we often don't even do ourselves. And we have him. So then, when we look at the lost, what kind of a perspective should we have on them? What do they need? Okay, they don't need a verbal slap of the hand. What they need is Jesus. They need the word of God. They need the very thing that we have that changes us. So let's give them that love and give them Christ and give them his word. Go on to verse 9. It says, The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. Uh, fear, then remember these are all words in poetry, so they're all going down the line on the word of God. And this one would feel kind of like a stretch, but we're following with this, and it says, uh, fear, the idea there of reverencing the Lord, of a worship of the Lord. So we can say here, the word of God, what does it elicit? What does it draw out of us? It draws out of us a reverence and a worship of him. And it's clean. The idea here is free from error, free from corruption, Free from defilement. Do we believe these things about the word of God? This is called the doctrine of inerrancy. The word of God is free from error, from corruption, for uh, free of defilement. And it endures forever. The word of God stands its ground. It's not going anywhere. Uh, the word of God was written without error. It has been preserved. It's been brought to us. Isn't it amazing to think that this, these documents from so many years ago have been preserved year after year after year after year. And here we have it today. And we know through scientific research and archaeological discovery that what we have is the very word of God. No other document comes close to the accuracy, even in secular uh, testings. So we think about like the Odyssey and the Iliad of Homer and... and uh, Gaelic Wars by Julius Caesar. All of these ancient documents, people say, oh man, we know we have just as much the original because we have these things. They have singles uh, to tens of copies of those things to the thousands upon thousands of manuscripts that we have for Scripture. There is no breaking the confidence that we can have, even from a secular perspective, that we have the very Word of God. He has preserved it without error and preserved it without defilement. So then we can perfectly trust its effectiveness in life because it is without error. God has made it clean. Think about this now. Tainted things die off. But God's word endures forever. Remember Gamaliel in in the book of Acts when, when the Pharisees were getting more and more riled up and wanted to persecute those apostles in the early church. And Gamaliel, who we find out later probably was the guy who taught Paul as he was growing up, or taught Saul of Tarsus, uh, to be a young Pharisee, Gamal stops everybody from going overboard, and he says, listen, we've had all kinds of guys come and go, all kinds of false messiahs that said that they were the guy, and they're not, and, and they died off, and the following that they had procured, that died off. So if this is just like all of those, the same thing will happen with this. That's what Gamal, that was a counsel Gamaliel gave to the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. And he said, but if this is of God, 
uh, I'm going to paraphrase this, we best get out of the way. (laughs) And here we are, it's 2018, in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, Gamaliel was right, right, wasn't he? Not sure he believed, but he was right about that. Clean things endure. Tainted things die off. And then the second half of verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Uh, the word rules carrying the idea of uh, judicial. Uh, these are judgments from the Lord. This is the divine verdict of God. And his divine verdicts are true. We know, we believe, and have faith that God always judges righteously. He is completely reliable in his judgments. And that because of who he is, his judgments are absolute. There's no higher court to go to. And that would scare us if we were thinking about our courts in this world. But he's perfect. He is righteous. He's holy. And the effects of those judgments, uh, the words that are used here are righteous altogether. So the idea here is learning the judgments of the Lord produces in the believer a righteousness that is comprehensive. Altogether righteous. And again, comprehensive meaning lacking in nothing. The Word of God contains everything that we need. So, as we take these verses in summary, the Word of God contains never-changing, always absolutely perfect instruction, testimony, principles, commandments, and judgments that are perfect, reliable, right, without error, and true, which results in our worship, our transformation, our increase of wisdom and understanding and joy. That's what God has given to us through his word. And with all that being said, how valuable is it to us? How valuable is it to you? How precious is the word of God to you? Is it your greatest treasure? Is it your greatest pleasure? And let's hear what David has to say about this as we look at verse 10. This is what he says. It was more to be desired than gold. And not just any gold, even much fine gold. It's sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. He would rather go to the word than go to the best potluck any church could provide. The word is better. It's more precious to be desired. He says, moreover, by them is your servant warned. And that is a gift from God, a warning from the scriptures, a gift from God, opening our eyes to our own blindness. And in keeping these precepts, these commandments, there is great reward. Verse 12 gives these questions here. It looks like in your Bible there's only a question mark after errors and then a period after faults, but in in the Hebrew this is just one thought, one sentence. So we can ask them both in question form. We can say, who can discern his errors? If we look back to the idea of the limitations of general revelation and then the detail of special revelation, without the word of God, who can discern his errors? And what's the answer? No one. No one can. Declare me from innocent or hidden faults. Who can declare me innocent from hidden faults? Without special revelation, no one. No one can. He says, then keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. The word presumptuous there meaning the idea of that word is failing to observe the limits. 
going out of bounds. Have you ever seen like a kindergarten basketball game and the little ones don't even know what they're doing or where they're going and they take the ball and they just run around the court with it and they kind of do like a football pose and and they run right out of bounds and they're just as happy as they were when they were in bounds. They don't know. That's a presumptuous sin. <laughs> They've gone out of bounds. They don't know it. And the referee lovingly gives them some special revelation, doesn't he? you got to stay in, in the line there, okay? That's the idea of this verse. Let those things not have dominion over me, a slavery to sin. It says here, then. Then I shall be blameless. Then I shall be innocent of great transgression. When the word of God does its work in me, then I'll be able to avoid sin. So this is not him saying, I'm blameless. I'm innocent. He's not saying that. He's saying, I didn't have the tools to pursue blamelessness or innocence to be avoiding transgression until you gave me your word. Now, as I take it in and as your words abide in me now, I can have this pursuit of blamelessness and being innocent of great transgression. So, since the word of God is all of this that we've been looking at and seeing today, since the word of God is to be valued and treasured as much as can be, and since it's able to keep me from ignorance, the word of God is able to keep me from sin, to keep me from destruction, destroying myself and my own sinfulness and godlessness. David says this then in verse 14. Therefore, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, my thinking, be acceptable. And the word there means pleasing. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, my thinking, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, in God's sight. This means that the my words that I speak and the thoughts that I think, Lord, help me so that they would be biblical. May the words I say be biblical. May my thoughts be biblical. You've given this to us. Make it what I think. Make it what comes out of me. Remember in Matthew it says that the things that come out of our mouth, what is the wellspring of that? Our heart. So you could even flip the order of those things. If the meditations of my heart are God's word, then the words of my mouth will be what? God's word. Does that make sense? And in this, listen to this other verse that you probably know. This is from Joshua 1.8. Joshua commands Israel, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do actions, your life, to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way, your path, prosperous. And then you will have good success. David is recommitting to the instruction of the Lord. 
that Joshua had given to the nation of Israel. He lays out by the uh, grace of God and, and the inspiration of God, he lays out the aspects and the details of Scripture. And then he recommits himself to the command that was given to them and what to do with that Scripture. Now, if we're not careful, we might stop here. Stop the sermon here and call it a day. Uh, We've learned so many things about general and special revelation, about God giving us all the instruction that we need, the sufficiency of Scripture. But if this is where the destruction, or the discussion, <laughs> if this is where the discussion ends, then where do we stand? And I kind of gave it away. Destruction, right? If this is where the discussion ends, where do we stand? Look back to verses 12 and 13. Remember that we have errors, we have guilt, we have sin, blame, transgression. Knowing the Word of God does not make all of those things vanish into thin air. We, we cannot be good enough from here on to undo all that we've ever done. And if we're honest, we'll remember that we do still sin. There's still things happening in our lives that are not pleasing to God. Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if we stop here, we are still hopeless. But God has not left us hopeless. The end of verse 14 says that he is our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. He's purchased us, and at a great price. Through general revelation comes condemnation, and through special revelation, without Christ comes only the knowledge of our sin. But God showed his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. So God knows that we cannot be righteous on our own. God knows our need of redemption. And God has provided for that need through Jesus Christ. Christ lived the perfect and sinless life. He, he was blameless and he was innocent of transgression. Christ died, the just, for the unjust. So that God's righteous wrath that we deserve would be poured out on him, on Christ, our substitute, our sacrificial lamb. And then God uses the word and the spirit to open our blind eyes to our need and to bring us to repentance and faith. And that our salvation places us in Christ. Then he becomes our redeemer. Then he becomes our strength, our rock, our fortress. Then we are made a new creation in Christ Jesus. Then we are freed from our slavery to sin and become servants from the heart, our own desire to the Lord. Then we have the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide us in all truth that God has given to us in his word. Then we can understand the scriptures. Then we can even apply those scriptures. And our thoughts, our words, and our actions, our lives, can then be pleasing to him. None of this is possible outside of Christ. If we get rid of the last verse of Psalm 19, we are of all men to be pitied. Because we'll fail all the time. Praise God for the glorious gift of grace through Jesus Christ. Our God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. So let's abide in him. Go to the scriptures so his words can abide in us. And then, church, let's be pleasing to him. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for your gift of Christ. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for giving us forgiveness of our sin. 
Thank you for allowing us in Christ to have uh, the power, freedom, to be able to live a life that's pleasing to you. And God, thank you for giving us your word so that we would know what that looks like, so we would know who you are, your nature, your desires, your commandments, your precepts. And God, thank you for the promise that if we uh, will allow these words to abide in us, that we will have everything we need to walk a straight path, and that in that straight path there will be joy, and that we'll have fellowship with you. God, may we never desire anything else more than that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.